Hello and welcome to Slot Plus, the extra segment of our show for those of you who are kind enough to support the journalism Slate does by becoming members. And our question for this week on Slate Plus is, as I mentioned before, one of our leftover listener calling questions. This actually resembles, I think, a question that Steve, Julie and I had answered before, and that's why we didn't choose it when it was the three of us together. But since we have two new people, fresh blood to give input, we can we can sort of recycle. The question was from a listener named Noel, and she wanted to know about a book that changed the way that we think, not necessarily your favorite book or the book that changed your life, but some book that shifted your mind into a new place from which it has never gone back. So Jessica, can you name a book that changed the way you think? One is Cat's Eye by Margaret Atwood, which I read in my late teens. It's about a young girl named Elaine. Uh, She grows up to be a a painter of of some renown. Um, Elaine, as a child, is both befriended by and bullied and tormented by three other girls, the ringleader of whom is named Cordelia. And then Elaine and Cordelia re-encounter each other at later stages of their life in which the power dynamic is much different. Um, It's a brilliant book about how young girls navigate relationships and these kinds of prototypical social pecking orders. And I think for me, and I would imagine for a lot of other readers, particularly female readers, it helped me understand and put into perspective my own experiences of friend drama, both as a teenager and in the thorny middle school years. And it made me realize how powerful those experiences can be in shaping your own identity identity and and the way that you perceive yourself. Um, I think I read, before I read Cat's Eye, I thought it was just me (laughs) who had these friend (laughs) dramas, which is really astounding when you think about it. Um, I, I thought that at these two stages of my young life, when I had friend drama, I had just made spectacular mistakes. And I, pro- I most surely did. But this book helped me realize that friend drama, at least for girls, is pretty close to universal and is a rite of passage. So I'm forever grateful to Margaret Atwood for that. Um, the second book, I can't say what it is, but it did change my life. Um, in the spring of 2013, I had had the idea to write a novel rattling around in my head for quite a while. Um, and I hadn't really done anything about it. Um, I had never even really written fiction before. And I, that summer, had recently purchased a critically acclaimed and much buzzed about novel that was, in very basic terms, in the same ballpark as what I thought I wanted to do. It was, it was a contemporary book. It was realist. It had female characters in it. It's like really, really broad strokes. It, it, was, it was in the same ballpark. And I thought this book was terrible. I, I was just blown away by how lame and sloppy and uninspired this much ballyhooed book was. And about halfway through it, I put it down and I said to myself, I can do better than this. Oh, my God. I love this story. (laughs) Negative example. (laughs) And um, within a few weeks, I had started writing what became my first novel, Breaking Case of Emergency. Um, I don't know if I succeeded in doing better than that book, but I will be forever grateful to that unnamed and unnameable book for kicking me in the butt like that. Um, I don't know that I would have written that first novel, and I don't know that I would be writing a second novel now without it. Oh, well, thank you for your bad book, Anonymous Person. <laughs> and did you ever pick it up and finish it after after having put it down to go write your own book? It's still at the bottom of the pile of books uh, in my bedside table. It just stays there as a reminder to me. Oh, that's a great story. I love that you were inspired by knowing that you could do better. than <laughs> That's great. What else are books for that, than other than to make us throw them down in rage and try to top them? 
<laughs> okay, Dan, what have you got? Uh, okay, so other than Break in Case of Emergency, the novel by Jessica Winter, <laughs> the books I chose that um, changed the way I think, I also chose two, although they are congruent. Um, they're, I read them around the same time in my life, and they taught me similar things. And I was struck, I remember when I read them, I think the same summer, when I was about 25, um, with the way they both sort of taught me a really valuable new way of thinking about things. So the books are um, Low Life by Luc Sant mm-hmm. and Family by Ian Frazier. Um, they're both books of nonfiction. Uh, they're both books of history, but they're about very different parts of American history. Low Life is about mostly downtown New York, mostly in the 1800s. Uh, a lot of it is about uh, the Five Points area that was later um, made famous in Gangs of New York. Um, and uh, family, the best parts of family at least, are uh, mo- are mostly about the Midwest in the first part of the 20th century. Um, low life is about the sort of opium, opium dens and the gang battles and the grifters and thieves of old New York. And family is just about Ian Frazier's family, his ancestors, who are mostly like boring Ohioans who are preachers and bookkeepers and stuff. But reading both of these books together, they're both – um, remarkable and feats of research, and they are both uh, remarkable feats of storytelling and the way that they tie that research beautifully into larger narratives about um, the way that places we think we understand uh, are different than, than what we really thought they were like. And um, they both really changed the way that I thought about history. They were the books that helped me realize that the stories that are the most interesting to to me, and the most interesting to find and tell are not the ones about famous generals winning battles, but the ones that if you work really, really hard, you can dig up about ordinary forgotten people and uh, and the way they lived. I know that this is like not a – in 2016, not a remarkable development. This is in fact the entire thrust of current histor- – most current historians' research and uh, the way that historiography is going now. But to me, at 25, it was like a totally revolutionary idea that history was not just about like guys in powdered wigs uh, orating. Um, And so – and they're both really wonderful books and funny and surprising and uh, juicy and great. And um, and they they really, really changed the way that I thought about uh, storytelling and looking at the past. Oh, yes. It's a great pair. Family. I've never never read that one. It's so good. Well, I'm on this this whole 19th century reading binge right now for my research, so maybe I can stretch it out a little bit longer and read that <laughs> Luke Sant book, which I've always wanted to read anyway. Um, so those those are two great ones, Dan. Um, All right. I, How I about feel, you, Dana? What do you got? I mean, I feel like I'm a little handicapped in this because one of my big life changing books I've already talked about on the show, as I say, when I think we were answering some similar question. And I mean, this is a little bit more. This is sort of like the college. The book that you get assigned to read in college and that, that flips your brain. And that book for me was St. Augustine's Confessions, which I read in a, in a sort of big Western Civ survey class that was a fantastic class looking back. One of those full year classes where people from different specialties come in and teach something from their period. And there was somebody who was a specialist in the Church Fathers. And so he assigned us the Confessions of St. Augustine, which sort of looked like the driest and most boring thing on the whole list. I mean, there was also Greek tragedy and Virginia Woolf and all this stuff that was sort of more easily identifiable as juicy you know, for a, for a college student. But as it turned out, the Confessions of St. Augustine, which is sort of 
often hailed as the first memoir, sort of the first personal account of, of a spiritual conversion, was a book that just completely blew me away and wound up making me major in medieval studies and loving just oh, wow. loving that period. Whoa. So so it was and it was essentially in, in, in a little bit something similar to what you were saying about those books opening up history to you, Dan, and getting a sense that history is not just a timeline and guys in powdered wigs, but is, you know, all of these countless lives and thoughts, you know, that have been some of which we're lucky enough to have recorded on paper. That was the sense that I got from reading Augustine's Confessions, this idea that, oh, you know, the experience of a guy who grew up in North Africa in the fourth century AD has something to do with me and my life and, you know, our lives and our experiences. The, the book gets much worse after he converts. Essentially, <laughs> you can imagine, right? I mean, the sentence that he's famous for, and I think it's in the confession somewhere, is, oh, Lord, please make me chaste, but not yet. Yeah, right. And yeah. so the part of the book where he isn't chaste yet, and he's describing his youthful follies and stealing pears from a tree, which is his first sin he remembers committing, is just incredible. It's this kind of inquiry into what is the self and mm-hmm. what is sin and what is, you know, original sin and what is motherhood because his mother is a big character in the book too and uh, and so that first half of the book up until he converts and starts you know moving his way toward being this bishop and his church father is just is just unbelievably loose um, what's the word limpid reading even mm-hmm. now you know you feel like you're just looking straight through you know it's sort of a transparent glass back into history and into the mind of this incredible individual who was a wonderful writer too so but that is not actually my pick because I've already talked about all this on the show and everybody's probably what, fast what, forwarding what the god damn it but just <laughs> uh, that book is astonishing for how immediate it can feel and I think it's such an important book for young people people to encounter in terms of reassuring you that the self is something that's constantly in formation. Right. Exactly. It's the perfect book you to assign make, to college you can freshmen. Mistakes, right. You can shed your skin many times over and it's okay. And you'll still become a church father someday if you if you play your cards right. <laughs> you don't have to be chased and, yet. And, and more boring than you were when you were still figuring it out. <laughs> But so then the other one that I'm going to throw in, because this actually reminds me a little bit more about um, what Jessica was talking about, reading, you know, hearing the stories of sort of personal relations gone wrong and thinking, oh, I'm not the only person who screwed up that badly. Um, But this is also related to the Augustine choice in the sense that it's a book with a very strong personal voice, like only that person could write in that way. And uh, and it's Deborah Eisenberg, the short story writer's, her collection called Transactions in a Foreign Currency, which might have been her first collection. I don't even think it's necessarily her best short story collection. She only works in the short story, essentially, and sometimes critical essays. And uh, and I'm not even a giant reader of the short story. I tend to find them just not quite enough and and always feel like, okay, that's great that you could get that many words out of it, but, you know, could you really go the distance? But Deborah Eisenberg is one of those writers who packs so much into every short story that she goes the distance every time. And Transactions in a Foreign Currency in particular, maybe because it's, it's what was one of her first, if not her first book, and she was pretty young when she wrote it also has that feeling of watching a self kind of in, 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 in crystallization, in the process of becoming a self. And, uh, and she has a way of recording experience that just wasn't like anyone else I had read before in that she, she it's, it's not stream of consciousness. I mean, it's all, you know, legible sentences, but that she sort of presents experience before it's processed, right? And before it's been turned by your mind into a story that would make sense. And, uh, and so you see that struggle to make meaning out of experience sort of on the page, and most, and most particularly in a, a story in that collection that's called Days that I think I've also talked about on the show a little bit before. And so Days is the, is the story you start to realize after about 10 pages that it's the story of someone coming out of a dark
dark period in her life, maybe a depression, maybe a bout of alcoholism, some kind of very dark moment and sort of the very, very slow steps by which she claws her way back to to normality. And uh, but but because of the way she presents that experience, you don't even realize what you're reading until until a good bit of the way in. So she is a virtuosic writer, extremely funny and uh yeah, just somebody who sort of made me realize that that fiction could be more, that could it could go deeper and be more than I thought it could be. I love Deborah Eisenberg. Um, there's a story of hers, and I'm embarrassed now that I can't remember the name of it because it is it's one of her major short stories where a young man is with his parents and they're dithering over what kind of ice cream to choose at an ice cream parlor, and the way that scene is described and way and the way the young man's embarrassment but also love for his parents comes across in that scene really crystallizes what you're talking about, about as she can take what are ostensibly the most banal incidents or scenes and tease out of them how we think about ourselves, how we perceive our family, how we have become who we are out of choosing ice cream flavors. You know, I mean, she's she's really magic. And uh, I've never read that collection, but I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I mean, you yeah, can get you can get her. Either. I think there's a huge Mongo, you know, all the stories of Deborah Eisenberg collection that they put out now. That's just you know a three inch thick compilation book, and it's really once you get started with her, it's a little bit like Iris Murdoch. I think where when you go on a De- Deborah Eisenberg jag, you don't want to get off that boat until <laughs> you've read everything. So I would actually recommend getting that complete stories if you're interested in exploring her. She is also um, a half of the. Uh, quasi celebrity couple I most wish had just adopted me at some point. <laughs> yes, uh, her her and her long term partner Wallace Shawn. I love Deborah Eisenberg and Wallace Shawn as a couple. Everything about them, I would be so it would be so tragic if they were ever to drift apart. It would make Brangelina just leave them in, <laughs> yeah. in the dirt. Um, and I especially love the way that they never married and they always refer to each other just by their names. It'll never be my girlfriend or my partner. They'll just say right. Deborah Eisenberg. <laughs> You know, and you just imagine them living together in their New York apartment, creating their wonderful works. Deborah Eisenberg, please pass the sugar. Okay, Wallace. Here you go, Wallace Sean. <laughs> All right, guys, those were great and surprising picks. And uh, having not read any of the books you all mentioned, I'm, I'm eager to read them all now. All right. Thank you very much, Slate Plus listeners, for supporting Slate and for listening in. And we'll talk to you next week.